Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of Mike Check on Sports. I'm Steve Napolitani. Thanks to everyone for their great feedback. I think the best part about this is the time that everyone has given me. The long-form interview really allows us to get an honest understanding of all these talented sports broadcasters. My next guest is a hockey analyst for NBC Sports and MSG Networks. He played over 600 career games in the National Hockey League, and he will always be in the conversation for having the best hockey hair in league history. <laughs> it's Anson Carter. Anson, how you doing? Just in the conversation now. I want to be the guy with the best hockey hair in league history. <laughs> hey, hey, great, great lettuce, man. Great lettuce. <laughs> I mean, in all serious note, though, I mean, I wish you could go back to those times when I did have that hockey hair with what we're dealing with with this global pandemic. But you know, at the end of the day, it's all about being safe, uh, enjoying time with friends and family, and just hopefully they'll come up with solutions so we get back to life as we once knew it. Yeah, for sure. So what have you been doing with your uh, with all your extra time? we got a new puppy. Oh, nice. <laughs> got a new puppy what named kind? Duke. Uh, Great Dane. Oh, wow. And yeah, I got sucked into it. My wife and my kids said, let's get a dog. Let's get a dog. We'll take care of it. And I should have learned my lesson. And they said the same thing about our French bulldog, Moose. Because we also have another Great Dane, too. His name is Thunder. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, a puppy. We're at home. Plenty of downtime. Great time to train this dog. And I thought it would be the perfect opportunity. And we went to go and look at the dog. And I thought, we're going to look at it, come home, family meeting, have a discussion, and wait for the next litter to come around. Mm -hmm. Well, guess who came home with a puppy? <laughs> we did. <laughs> nice. So between that and Law and & Order and Judge Judy, <laughs> I've, had, I've had plenty of options to pass the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you know, I started this podcast because I thought, you know, everybody's missing hearing your guys' voices and but I thought it would be a good opportunity for people to kind of get to know you guys a little better. So if we, if we go back in time a little bit, you know, your parents are from Barbados, but you grew up in Toronto, Ontario. Mm -hmm. What was life like there as a kid? It was awesome. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better childhood, to be honest with you. Oh, uh, Toronto great. is the ultimate melting pot. I know everyone likes to talk about New York City being the melting pot of the U.S. Well, I think Toronto's the melting pot of the whole world. Mm. But all these different communities coming together. And the one thing that really ties everything together is hockey. Mm. Like you come to the country and the quickest way to assimilate into being a Canadian and being in Toronto is loving hockey. So that's all I ever did. I played hockey, I played basketball, I played baseball, I played football, I played all these other sports, but hockey is my number one love. And you know, I, I look back at my time there and you know, you always hear people say in the U.S. that if you can make it in New York City, <laughs> you can make mm -hmm. it anywhere. Yeah. Well, it's similar to Toronto. You can come out of Toronto as a hockey player, you can play right. in any league. And I've been certainly fortunate to be able to play the highest league possible. So was there a certain coach or someone influence on you at a young age that really kept you involved? Or was it just because it's Toronto and it's hockey and that's what everybody does? I had a number of different coaches, uh, a guy named Brian Ballantyne, uh, who his nickname was Buford. He was a goalie. And he spotted me at first. And, you know, I couldn't skate when I first started playing the game of hockey. I was a street hockey wizard. <laughs> like, I could stick handle. I knew the game. I loved the game. Uh -huh. But I couldn't skate. I was an ankle burner. So my parents, being from Barbados, they said, you're not playing hockey. Like, you can't skate. <laughs> Plus, in Barbados, the only time they see ice is in their drinks. <laughs> so it wasn't like it's something that came natural to them. But they understood that I was passionate about the game. My sister Michelle played soccer. 
So I kind of use it as leverage. My parents would treat everyone the same. Right. So I said, well, Michelle's playing a sport. I'm going to play a sport. But I didn't know that hockey was $3,000 more yeah. <laughs> than it was to play soccer. So, and we weren't rich at all by any means when I was growing up. So uh, that stretched the family income considerably. But it was just my, my love of the game. And I got a new pair of skates my first year. And I played defense because I couldn't skate. So they put me out there. And I'd always fall down when guys came blowing by me. <laughs> and I could rattle off of the guy. I can see the guy's names even now, like Kevin Heighton, Donnie White. Um, all these guys that I played against, Adrian Sierra, these guys were unreal when I first started playing. Uh-huh. But then Christmas time, I got a new pair of skates, a new pair of Langs that were like the, the molded skates with more ankle support. Yeah. And I started scoring five goals a game. Wow. <laughs> and I just missed the league scoring title by two points. Wow. And how old were you then? I was eight. eight wow. I was eight. Like that, That's late in Toronto. Like People in Toronto learn how to skate before they can walk. Right. So I was eight years old. Uh, just playing the game. I loved it. I started playing competitive rep hockey, travel hockey that, that next year. And my parents, once again, were said to me, like, you can't play travel hockey. This is, your, this is your second year. And the coach, Brian Ballantyne, said, give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was my coach for the longest time up until I played uh, for Don Mills Flyers and had another coach that was there, Randy Ward. And he was also a scout for the Sudbury Wolves. Mm-hmm. And he kept pushing me. That was, that was the first time I thought maybe I could play hockey at a higher level. And he kept pushing me to train and to do stuff in the off season. And after that, I played for Coach Butler at Wexford. And that's when I started thinking about college hockey as an, uh, an avenue as opposed to going to the OHL. Right. So you went on and played for Wexford Raiders, right? One season, Ontario Junior Hockey League. Mm-hmm. You're drafted by the Quebec Nord- Nordiques in the 10th round of the 92 draft. But then you made a decision to come to the United States and go to Michigan State University but it wasn't only for hockey. Tell us about your decision to come to the school in the States. Yeah, I always wanted to go to school. I, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm that rare Canadian kid that I didn't dream initially to, to lift the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. because I didn't really see many players that looked like me playing the NHL. Right. So I wasn't sure if that was even going to be an option for me. But I always saw people, say, of color in the Olympics of, you know, all different sports. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things and the goals that I wanted to try to achieve play in the Olympics if I couldn't play for Team Canada. And it would have worked out until they switched the Olympic years. And then I got screwed while I was in college. Right. But that's another story. But so I get drafted by Quebec. And when I got drafted, I thought it was Kevin Weeks that actually had called me. And Weeks, he lived a couple streets over from me. And we'd shared my rollerblades. I was like the first guy in Toronto to ever have rollerblades. Mm. <laughs> and he was a goalie. I was a player. And I, we'd share the rollerblades. I'd skate over to his house. You know, I'd put on his pads. He'd put on the rollerblades, and we'd go back and forth. So I went to the draft that year, the previous year, with a, with a good friend of mine, um, Brian Muir, who played hockey in New Hampshire. He played with me with, with Wexford also. And we go to the draft. We only stayed, sorry, my draft year, we only stayed for a few rounds. Like maybe, I think it was only four rounds. Mm-hmm. Because we thought I was getting drafted the following year when I went to Michigan State. Because right. nobody got drafted before they go to college. Everyone got drafted usually after freshman. So I decided then to go to the draft with Brian Muir and watch his draft. We leave <laughs> after four rounds because <laughs> we had enough. And driving from Toronto to Montreal took five hours. Right. I come back. I'm sitting at home. I talk to my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister about the draft, whatever. And... <laughs> The next day rolls around. I'm reading the Toronto Sun, and you know, 
it's weird to think you know, there's like the newspaper, the draft, and it's mm-hmm. instead of the internet. But I'm reading the first four rounds. I'm seeing all these guys get drafted. I'm thinking about the next year. I'm getting drafted. I can't wait. And the phone rings. And our phone, we only had caller ID downstairs in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. The other phone didn't have caller ID. Right. So you didn't know yeah. who was calling. So I'm upstairs. I grab a phone. And I hear, hi, is Anson Carter there? And I'm like, yeah, speaking. And they're like, yeah, this is uh, Dom Boyd from the Quebec Nordiques. Just calling to you know, congratulate you for getting drafted. And I was like, Easy week, see, like settle down because he could, <laughs> he could, he he could do anybody's voice, right? Like he's a genius when it comes to like mimicking people's voices. So I was like, yeah, nice try, ha ha, you're so funny, ha ha ha. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> well, then the phone rings back again, and, and they're like, uh, yeah, hey, is uh, Anson Carter there? I'm like, yeah, it's Anson. Yeah, it's Dom Boyd. I'm like, weeksy, like enough, like enough, right? Like I haven't even had breakfast yet. I'm just sitting here chilling. Like, we'll play street hockey late, like, enough. And so the phone rings again, and I hear, wait, 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 don't, don't hang up, don't hang up. I'm like, okay, this is Weeksy. He's like, no, this is Dom Boyd. <laughs> I said, okay, I got drafted. He goes, yep. I go, what round? He goes, the 10th. I go, the 10th? <laughs> so I had to run back downstairs and get the second half of the newspaper because I only had the first four <laughs> rounds. So I go and I read, like, find the 10th round. It's only 11 or 12 rounds back then. And I see 220 overall, Anton Carter. And I was so pissed. You have no idea now. Really? I was so pissed. Because I guess people think you should be excited to get drafted. Right. In my mind, I was a first rounder. And I was pissed I got drafted in the 10th round because I always thought I was getting drafted after my freshman year at school. Right. So that was just motivation for me. Like, I went to the draft the next year, which was in Quebec City, and I met the whole front office, and they could barely say boo to me. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, okay. They gave me a little cheesy hat. I didn't get a jersey. I didn't get anything. And I was just pissed because I'm thinking, okay, you guys think because I'm not a guy named Todd Warner who you guys drafted fourth overall that you could just, you know, overlook me and turn around. I said, I got right. something for you guys. And that was motivation. Like, I never talked to Nordiques once my whole college career. Wow. Not once. All-American, Kobe Baker Award finalist, Team Canada, won a gold medal, World Juniors, one of the best under-20 players in the world, and nothing from them. Never checked in, <laughs> never nothing, right? Never. Nothing. Nothing. And, and – don't get it twisted. Like, I'm not an idiot. I know for sure it had something to do with me being a black player. For sure. Right. It, it wasn't the same time as it is now. Like, there's no way that you have one of the top scorers in the country averaging 30 goals a year in college at the time. And you, you don't get a phone call? <laughs> at the World Juniors, I see other guys talking to the representatives from the team, and mm-hmm. I don't get nothing? <laughs> nothing? Like, come on. Like, it, it could only be one plus one's got equal two. Right. So I was so motivated by that. And I had no desire to play for the, the, the Avalanche then. They had a pretty good team. But I was like, you know what? Screw these guys. I'm not going to play for these guys. I've got no desire. And that kind of fueled my fire for when I got to the league. Like, I, I knew that wasn't going to be something that's going to hold me back. Right. And I see these young players getting drafted in the first round. And they think they have it made. And I, I, I look and I, there's so many first-round busts out there. And that's the reason why. Because when teams draft these first-round kids, they give them everything. They right. pamper them. These kids think they haven't made. They don't have to work. And the other kids that aren't drafted high in the first round, if they think drafted late in the draft, if they're not strong-willed and motivated, they give up so early because the team's not showing them any love. Right. Well, that's what Steve Valaket told me. He took it personal when he was the 21st goalie drafted. He's <laughs> like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to last longer than every other goalie in this draft. That's my goal. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. 
And and it, to this day, I still think about that. This cheap Quebec Nordiques hat they gave me. <laughs> and I'm seeing all these other guys rocking these like two or three hundred dollar jerseys walking around. And I was like, okay, <laughs> enough of this hat. <laughs> <laughs> but it was motivation, without uh, a doubt. I use it as motivation. Right, 100%. and percent. And did I did I read somewhere that you also were looking to be? You went to Michigan State because you were maybe thinking about being a doctor as well. I was, so I wanted to study medicine, and I went to state to play baseball and hockey. Um, I love baseball, and I actually wanted to be a professional baseball player uh, because that's, I grew up in Toronto around the time when the Toronto Blue Jays were at their peak. Mm-hmm. And I loved Tony Fernandez, George Bell, Jesse Barfield, Dave Steve, Tom Hankey, yeah. uh, Jimmy Key. Like, those are the teams. Right. You know, Bobby Cox, Cito Gaston, like, those are the teams I love the Jays because they're winning. Mm-hmm. And the Toronto Maple Leafs were awful, <laughs> just awful. They're owned by Harold Ballard for years. There's the hardest ticket to come by. The place is still packed. And they didn't care about winning. So I love the sport of baseball. I collected baseball magazines. I still collect the hockey magazines, too. I love the game of hockey. But baseball was starting to steal my heart a little bit because they were winning. Mm-hmm. So I went to state. They were going to allow me to play both. And the reason why I didn't play both in the springtime is because I ended up getting mono about halfway through the year. So I just completed the hockey season. I decided to rest and not play baseball and go on the spring trip. But I wanted to play both there, and they were going to give me the opportunity to play both there. But Mm. I always look back at my time at Michigan State where now it's normal for a kid to go to college and play in the National Hockey League. Back then, not so much. Right. And that was the best four years of my life, without a doubt. Hmm. 178 points in 156 games. Like 106 goals. You were the cats in your senior year. Hobie Baker finalist. I mean, it had to be beyond what you ever thought, right? It was it was amazing. The people treated you with so much respect. It was, it was like your own little city. Uh, my last year, I think I might have had 23 goals my last year. And that was because I got hit from behind. Jamal Mayers, a clown. I always give him a hard time <laughs> about it. I played jammer in minor hockey too, actually. Don most flyers. So I say that just jokingly. But he hit me from behind. I went head first in the goalpost. And I must have been, I swear, I was probably concussed at the time. And the, the, the face mask and the bolt to connect the helmet to the mask cut into my forehead. And I oh. still wanted to play. And my head was on fire the last month or two in the season. I didn't really do anything. So I was stuck on 23 goals the longest time for like the last 10 games or so. But I was on pace to score another 30 goals that year too. Oh. Like it, was, it wasn't even close. But the, I, I just, I wanted to play so much. Like when my senior year ended, I remember going into the bathroom and just crying my eyes out, like crying, hmm. like you would uncontrollably, because that was the last time I could put that jersey on. Right. That's how much I enjoyed playing college hockey. And, you know, Coach Mason would always say, hey, give me your all here, guys. Like, we, you get treated better here than you go at the National Hockey League level. Hmm. And we would have players like Brian Salinci come back, Wes McCauley, who's a referee now, right. um, the Miller brothers. They'd always come back and say, hey, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's totally right. You guys get spoiled here. And I remember thinking, wait a minute. This is college hockey. That's the NHL. He can't be serious. And sure enough, he was true. Wow. He, he was telling the truth. And then you were honored by them in 2011, right? Yeah, I was honored by them. Um, distinguished alumni. I went back there. Uh, I don't get a chance to watch as many games as, as I, I can or, or I should now because I, I've covered over Dame hockey. Mm-hmm. And I watch college hockey in general. But I still keep an eye on the program. Now they got Dan Cole coaching. Uh, he's he's the right guy. Like he was at USA Hockey for the longest time. And he won with New Jersey, played in the National Hockey League. Uh, that was when the problem with since Coach Mason had retired, uh, they didn't really have a consistent coach there that could be there for the next 20 years. 
and that really affected recruiting. Like college sports, it's all about recruiting. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't care what program you are. If you don't have the right horses, you're not going to win. And Michigan State weren't getting the right horses for years when I was playing there. We always had the top recruits, always. That, that's where guys wanted to go. And it's starting to change now. But I look back when I was younger, and Coach Walsh, you know, rest in peace. He was Coach Mason's son-in-law. When he was at University of Maine, he offered me a scholarship like when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and and you, you could do that back then. Right. And Michigan Tech, I think the, the next summer, offered me a scholarship. And that's when I started learning more about college hockey. But those places were too far away from home for me. So I went to Michigan State. My first visit, I had Michigan, Wisconsin, Harvard, and Maine as my other visits. I just went to State, and that was it. I fell in love with the campus. And I canceled everywhere else and said, this is where I'm going to school. That's awesome. And then you mentioned, because the – your goal was to play in the Olympics, but you, you played in the World Junior Championships during your college years in the Czech Republic. You guys end up bringing back gold. How much did representing your country in the World Juniors mean to you? It was awesome. At the time, I was uh, I was a sophomore, and I went to the Team Canada summer camp in Lake Placid, mm-hmm. and I was always partnered with, uh, with Jason Arnott. Mm. And Arnie was drafted seventh overall by the Edmonton Oilers. And I look back at it now, and... I was a lot to make that team. Now that I look back and how everything played itself out, but I didn't know at the time because right. I'm still a 10th round in my mind. <laughs> I don't play major junior hockey. Usually that, with those teams, they only had one college player every year. If that, if you're lucky, because it was more heavily weighted towards junior guys in Canada mm-hmm. through Hockey Canada, yep. whereas USA Hockey had all the college kids and not so many junior kids in Canada playing on that team. It's all about politics. It's changed now. It's about the best players. Before politics, where it really played into the situation. So when I went to camp, I was sick. And I was coming off having a flu at state. I went to camp. Uh, I thought I had a good camp. I didn't have a great camp. But then we went overseas. I started to get stronger. And I played with, with Aaron Gaby and Todd Harvey. And we were like the top shutdown line. We were shutting down other teams' best teams, other teams' best lines, and also contribute offensively too. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we, 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 we mowed that tournament and we were picked to finish last in that tournament because we didn't have Paul really? Korea. We didn't have, yeah, we didn't have Rob Niedemeyer. We didn't have Chris Gratton, I think, was also eligible. Um, Alex Dague was eligible. Arnott was eligible. And those guys played in the NHL right away. Hmm. So everyone's like, oh, this Canada team, like, who are these guys? Like, whatever. And we went undefeated. I think we're 7-0-1 or 6-0-1 or something like that and won the gold medal. Huh. And And that was the moment where I said, it's not – if I'm going to play in the NHL, it's when. Right. Like that was, that was right your there. turning point right there? Yeah, I knew right there. I came back to stay. Like, I was on a, almost like a goal of game pace already, but that, that took my game to a whole different level. Mm-hmm. And I knew I was going to play. And then, and then seeing Smolenski my freshman year step in and play in Boston uh, on TV, playing against Pittsburgh, when after his senior year, I was like, wow. Uh, he played the same ice I was playing on. Right. Like, this is the same player. I, I saw him practice every day. So I thought... If Smoke could play in the league, I could play in the league. <laughs> it's just whether I get that opportunity. Right. That was my only concern. So then you wrap up your four years at Michigan State. Nordiques no longer in nope. Quebec, as nope. you said. Colorado, great team at the time. Then you, you say, I want to be traded. What, what was their reaction? Did they – was there much pushback or, or what? There wasn't, much pu- yeah, there wasn't much pushback at all. They, mm-hmm. they thought they had their own prospects coming through the pipeline. Right. And uh, – you know, they were very happy to trade me. They, they wanted to get a lot from me. That's my understanding from Pat Brisson, who was my agent, 
reasonable agent for the longest time. Like I think it was his second client, Marty Gendron, his nephew, was his first client. Wow. Luke Robitaille, his teammate in Hull, and now Breeze is probably the most powerful agent in hockey. Yeah. Like he represents everybody. But Breeze is my agent at the time, and also Steve and Tom Rich. Um, but I said I was like, I need to get out of there. I've got no interest in playing there. And I think initially I got traded to Florida, but the paperwork didn't go through. <laughs> so then Washington traded for me. And Breeze had called me. I was sitting in my college house because we rented the house. I lived with two girls, Sarah and Terry, who played in the field hockey team, mm -hmm. and another guy, roommate. And he goes, I got good news and I got bad news. I was like, okay, let's start with the good news first. <laughs> and uh, he goes, you got traded. And I was so pumped. I was like, yeah, yeah, where, where, where? And he talked about the Florida, mm -hmm. that deal going through. And then he said, you got traded to Washington. I said, what's the bad news? He said, well, you got traded to Washington. <laughs> I go, what do you mean? What's what's the problem? <clears throat> and his nephew was drafted by Washington. He was a high-scoring winger and junior. He wasn't really getting a sniff at all. And he goes, they like their young players to play in the minors first. And I was like, play in the minors? I go, screw that. I'm ready to step in right now to play in the National Hockey League. Right. He goes, I know, but that's, that's, how, that's their philosophy. I go, well, that's not happening. He goes, well... I said, well, I'm going to show them then. So right away, we're starting contract negotiations. And once again, being a 10th round pick comes up in negotiations. Right. <laughs> and I was bullheaded then and never changed. I was like, nah, -uh, that's not happening. Like, yeah, I was drafted 10th round. That was four years ago. How many 10th rounders do you see Hobie Baker Award nominees? Right. All Americans, world junior champions. Like, you don't see that very often. So don't give me that 10th round stuff. And I missed my window to play in the NHL that spring. Mm -hmm. And then they called back again and said, well, Portland has a good team, very trot to the coach. They won the year before, something like that. They get a chance to win again, or they're, they're really good, and you get some good professional experience before coming to training camp. I said, okay, pay me what I'm worth. You know, I see a guy named Brian Holzinger drafting the fifth or sixth round mm -hmm. by Buffalo, gets first-round money. I'm seeing all these guys getting all this money, and I'm like, no, this is the business. I get it, but don't treat me like I'm some second-class citizen. Right. It's not happening. So we missed the Portland window to play, <laughs> and Washington was pissed. Like they're so pissed. I go, if they're so pissed, tell them to trade me again. Right. Like, why would you guys waste my time for? Like, I don't understand. Right. So, so the draft goes by. I don't sign. I finally signed then in July, and they wanted me to come and train with them in in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm, it's not happening. I said, I got a good setup out here. I moved out to California. I had Chris Chelios. I had Rick Tockett. I had Alexander McGilney. I had Val Bure. Uh, uh, Marilyn Lemieux trained with us. Like, we had, like, the who's who. Kevin Stevens and NHL all training out mm -hmm. there. And I think, I think JR came out one year, too, with us. Oh. But And we were, like, we're the, the cutting edge of training. And now everyone's doing that stuff now. But we had our group that we trained together. And we're pushing it. Uh, every single day. Like, I almost threw up almost every single day training. And I go, it's not happening. I go, I'm training with Rick Tockett, Chris Chelios, and these guys. I've never been to an NHL training camp yet. I go, me being around these guys will make me feel comfortable walking into a room with Dale Hunter and Mark Tenorti. Like, they're not going to seem like they're anybody important, even mm -hmm. though they are. They're right. main cause of the team. But I'm not going to be overwhelmed like some of these guys that come to the NHL training locker room for the first time. So... Washington was pissed at me for not coming and training. So finally, Breeze says to me, he goes, well, just go down there, go and train, let them see your face, whatever, and, and get them off your back. I said, okay, cool, fine. So we called Washington. They sent the flight information, went down there. Literally the first 
five hours I'm there. Trotty walks up to me after being in the gym and on the track, and he's like, what are you doing here? I was like, what do you mean? You guys told me to come down here. He goes, you, you shouldn't be here. I'm going to see you in training camp. Like, you have no business being here. Like, you're way far beyond any of these kids right now huh. <laughs> in terms of your conditioning and your fitness. I said, thank you. Can you tell somebody up top that? Because I've been saying this the whole time. So before that conversation went down, I remember David Poyle had called and was like, I don't want to have a conversation yelling at you at training camps, you know, saying you should have been here all summer training. You're not in shape. And I told him, I was like, that's not going to happen. So I went to Washington. I set all their fitness records for training camp my first year that I was there. I came in at like 220 pounds, mm -hmm. and I was like, I think like 4% body fat. Hmm. Like it was the heaviest I've ever been because back then you had to be strong. It wasn't more about speed. It's about strength to fight through clutching and grabbing. But it was the heaviest I'd ever been, but I was strong and I was ready. And I made the team in training camp. And, uh, you know, it, it's weird because when I got there, I don't know if there was an intention of me playing in the National Hockey League right away mm -hmm. because training camp came, three exhibition games went by, and I didn't see the light of day nap. Really? And not I'm, one. And I'm, and I'm, not one. And I'm practicing with Trotsy and his group. So after the three games go by, I'm skating with practice Trotsy, and I hit Trotsy. I go, what's going on here? He goes, what do you mean? I go, why am I with this group? He goes, this is the Portland group. I go, I'm not even getting a game? He's like, I, I don't know what to tell you, kid. Like, I said, this is a joke. Not even a game? So mm -hmm. what happened is we're playing against Philly then the next, in like two or three nights, we're having a game against Philadelphia, and they, they dress all their tough guys. And guess who gets the tap to go in? <laughs> I do. <laughs> so in my mind, I know they're saying, screw this kid. We're going to put him in against Philadelphia in Philadelphia. He's going to crap himself. And the rest of history, we're going to send him down. Well, I had three points in that game. Hmm. And physical, like, I was just so hungry to get my opportunity. And I ended up leading the team in scoring that training camp after missing out in those three games, first three games. And I start the Europe in the NHL. And I'm playing on the fourth line, though. I'm playing hmm. with Brube and Kaminsky. <laughs> so... You know if, you're, if your winger's nicknames are Chief and Killer, right. you're not expected to score. Right. It's just not going to happen, you know? And they're the greatest linemates ever, like always. But there's times that I'm, like, coming out of the zone. Right. I'm looking over at Chief on my left side. He's nodding his head saying, nope, I don't want it. <laughs> I look over to Killer on my right side. He's like, nope, don't even think about it, kid. <laughs> so all I can do is try to navigate my way through the neutral zone and oh. dump it in. So they could go in and hammer guys. <laughs> oh my god, that's classic. <laughs> so yeah, that that's what happened. I mean, I started in the fourth line and I never got an opportunity to play in the first line until the second half of the season. Like I was in the toilet seat for the first half of the year. I was up for a couple of games, right. I get sent back down. Up and I, I never had a long fuse um, when I played. Like I was always like that guy that I could see what was going on and I wasn't gonna stand for and I was gonna say something about it too, like be respectful but say something about right. it. And I was on that fourth line. I'm leading our team in scoring in the HL. We got the best team in the HL. Whenever I get sent down, I'm missing games too. And every time I get called up, I'm playing on the fourth line. Right. And I love Chief and Killer, but every time guys like Yor Yaroslav Sikoski get called up, um, they get played. They get played on the first line. Right. And I was like, whoa, what, what's going on? Like Alex Harlamov, like all these guys right. get on the first line. Brad Church. And I'm, yeah, I'm like, how come these guys are playing with Pavanka and Bondra and I'm playing with Killer and Chief? Right. Like, what, what's up with this situation here? So, we have a rookie party in Arizona, <laughs> and I get called up. I don't play. 
I paid twenty five thousand dollars for the rookie dinner. Twenty five grand. Twenty five grand. Woo! And I get sent down. <laughs> and I get called, and, and Shoney's in there, and, and David's in there, and like we're sending you down. I go, you know what? I said to him, I was like, this is a fucking joke. That's what I said. Huh. I go, it's a joke. And they're like, what do you mean? As you guys call me up, you don't play me. I fly cross country. I pay twenty five grand for rookie dinner, and I get sent back down again. It's a joke. It's a joke. Right. So what was their reaction? What they didn't say anything. Hmm. They didn't say anything. So I, I get sent down. We got the AHL All Star game coming up, and the scout from this one team—I don't even know what team it was—said, "Hey, do you like it in Washington?" I go, "Yeah, I like it. I just wish I get more of an opportunity there, but I like it. Guys are great. Team's great. You know, the man. Not, I mean, the coaching staff's great. The players, more, more importantly, are awesome." He's like, "I wouldn't buy anything there if I were you anytime soon," and hmm. I was like, "What?" And I didn't think anything of that. I was like, "What the hell is he talking about? I don't right. buy anything like." What's and I mean it turns out I get traded then that spring mm-hmm. and I was on the on the market and I guess teams are calling trying to see if I was available because I'm the leading scorer in the NHL whenever I'm getting sent down there I'm not playing the NHL <laughs> and teams are probably like okay let's try to get this kid out of there huh. and when I I end up sticking around I beat up Broad Brindamore in a fight <laughs> and I beat this kid up in in the minors too I forgot the guy's name a French Canadian kid for the St John's Maple Leafs. And after that, it was almost like a sign saying, you have to fight to stick around this league. And I was like, it's not happening. Right. I was like, one of the top scorers in college, it's not happening. And I, I made that my mind up early. I said, I'm not going to be a goon in this league. Right. I came through as a scorer. I can fight if I have to. And I got to, if I have to remind guys every now and then, listen, this is what Carter could do. Right. I would do that and send a message. But I wasn't going to make a living doing that. Because I, I remember watching every other black player when I was growing up, I was like, this guy's a goon. That's all this guy is. He's a, he's a tough guy. He's a fighter. Right. And I want to make sure other kids coming up after me knew that you could play in the league without having to be a tough guy. Right. You're a skill guy. Right. Right. So that was that's what I did. That's exactly what I did. I went out of my way not to fight as much just so I could prove a point that I could play this game without having to fight. Hmm. And it wasn't because I was scared or I couldn't fight. Like, you asked the guys, like, I could fight. Right. You know, I had to remind guys, like, ask Kelly Buckberger. Like, he, he knows. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bunch of guys that had fights with Jason Smith, Robert Smith. Like, like it just it, it happened. I wasn't going looking for it. But I wasn't going to be that guy that obviously threw him over the boards. He was a, You see the guy, like, 100 points in junior or, or minor hockey, and all of a sudden he's got no points in 1,000 pims. Like, mm-hmm. that wasn't going to be me. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, so they want me to be a, a tough guy in Washington. They finally trade me to Boston, and that came up as a, a complete surprise. <laughs> I didn't see that coming at all because I'm in I'm in Maryland. Actually, I'm in Virginia one afternoon with uh, my roommate Terry from college. Her family lived in Virginia, so I'm at Terry's house. Their mom and dad were watching the Wash. They're called the Washington Bullets back then. Yeah, and they're the, the, the Wizards. Wizards. Yep. Yeah, so we're watching the basketball game, and at, we see this thing coming across the ticker. And the announcer's like, oh, the Caps make a huge trade. More news at halftime. And I jumped out of my seat. I was like, what? Huge trade? Blockbuster? Oh, my gosh. I'm thinking, who got traded? Was it Pavanka? Was it Bondra? Was it right. t- the Tin Man? Tenorin? Like, who was it? So I called Jason Nelson. I'm like, Ali, we're finally going to get a chance to play. They made a Blockbuster. And they're clearing some room for us. Because up until that moment, like, we were playing a ton. And we are getting a point a game then. So we're like, oh, we're finally getting some ice time. This is great. They, we we showed we could actually play in the league. We're getting an opportunity. And he goes, we got traded, dumbass. <laughs> <Just like that>. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he said. We got. I was like, I go, wait a minute. 
it's a blockbuster deal. He goes, yeah, I know. I said, how are we getting traded being a blockbuster? I said, you're a first round that never played. I was a guy that doesn't play. Like, what's he talking? Like, what are you talking? He goes, yeah, we got traded with Jim Carrey too. I was like, they traded Ace. Hmm. He's like, yep. I go, who's coming back the other way? And he's like, Ranford, Tockett, and Oates. I was like, oh my goodness. So I turned my cell phone on, and back then, if you had the Motorola flip phone, you turn your phone <laughs> off to save your minutes, right. you know, and your airtime. So I turned turn my phone on, and they're like, you have 100 new messages. Holy <laughs> like, cow. What? So my mom called me. She's crying. She's worried because she hears all the stories, and she heard all the stories about Boston being one of those racist towns, and she's afraid of that happening to me. It was mm-hmm. Harry Sinnon looking for me. It was David Poyle looking for me. So my parents were really, they were, they were nervous. Right. Like, they're really worried about me going to Boston. And, and Boston is actually one of my favorite places to play. Like, the people there couldn't have been nicer. The experience was awesome. It was awesome. It was nothing like what my parents had anticipated, which was, which was great. Wow. So here's a list of names. Adam Oates, Phil Ranford, Rick Tockett, Alex Hemsky, Bill Guerin, Yarmir Yager. You were, over the years, certainly traded for a who's who's list of NHLers, as you said in that last blockbuster deal. As hard as the trades are, does it feel good to know how valuable you were? No, I don't really think of it that way. No. I see it from the standpoint I was never given an opportunity to really establish myself anywhere. Right. Like when I was in Boston, um, I had like 24 goals in like 40-something games. And you know, I was really starting to take my game to the next level, played well in the playoffs. And they're like, oh, we're, we're going to move them. We can't let them get settled. It was almost like they wouldn't allow me to become established as in – as a, one of the faces of the organization. Mm-hmm. And same thing happened in Edmonton. You know, leading scores, and all of a sudden, I get moved again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, like this is like, it's, it's so bizarre. Like, I was, like, by the time I retired, I was, I was over the games. Like, I felt like there was a real, there was a glass ceiling there. And I would see other guys get these opportunities. Like, I got like Jerome McGinley given the opportunity to develop and play in the same city and, and right. become who he became. And every time I started to get going, they're like, oh, we got to move him. We're not going to pay him what he's worth. Hmm. Like you get, everyone gets the same comps from the NHLPA. Right. You get the same. You get the list of ten guys, and I'd always want to get want to get paid in the middle group of those ten guys, and the teams are always coming in at the bottom of that list. Whereas every time a guy deals up, they get paid in the upper third of that list. Right. So I'm seeing this happening over and over again, and I was like, "This, I'm not stupid, people. Like, come on, like enough's enough." Right. So that that was the only thing. Like, yeah, people are like you you bounce around a lot, but I was like, I was never given that opportunity. You know, now the NHL's changed now, thank God, for the better. Mm -hmm. And things aren't done the same way they were done back then. And that's part of why I want to stay involved in the game, too, just to help with that change. Right. And and, and help that process along and and help organizations or even help players more importantly. I'm a sounding board for a lot of different players where I reach out to them or they reach out to me if anything happens or anything's going on and they have something to talk about. I can tell them, like, this is how you navigate through those waters. Because I never had that opportunity. I had to hold out twice in my career hmm. when I really shouldn't have been holding out back then. But I had no choice. So if I hear of a player holding out now and I see the situation, it doesn't make sense to hold out. I'll say, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do not hold out. And this is why. Right. This is what you got to think about. And I, I didn't have that guy back then to give me that advice that wanted nothing from me. Just, just want to make sure I did well, made as much money as I could for myself, and just, just looked out for my own well-being just because – things were tough for him. Like I didn't have that guy. Right. So that's why I think it's so crucial to try to be that guy now for these players. Uh, it's just it's another resource for guys to talk to. 
Right. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell guys go and like just hold out just do like I'm not gonna be a militant guy when you don't have to. Like if there if that situation calls for it, yes, but the times have changed now. Mm-hmm. So now there's a way to conduct business and get what you need and get the team what they need and everyone's happy about it. Right. I mean, you talk about that one trade story where you didn't even know you turned on the phone. You know, I remember being on the plane and you being pulled off the plane in Westchester. Yeah. Yes. The day you were traded for Yarmir Yager. I mean, yep. was that one of the more bizarre trades for you too? It, it was, but it, it wasn't. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And I don't know how many people know this story. <laughs> but, um, oh man, I, I could see his face right now too. And he just passed away recently. He was a Rangers assistant coach. Teddy Green? Uh, Teddy Green, that's yeah. it. So I'm sitting there and I broke my ribs. I had broken ribs or broken stuff. I think I had broken ribs, like cracked ribs. And I get this weird feeling from this guy all the time. It was, it was just weird. It's hard for me to explain that. Super weird. And he, he's, he'd always eye me down kind of weird all the time. And I was like, oh, whatever. No, it's no big deal. But then I got the, I got the cracked ribs and I wanted to play. I think I missed a couple of games. And I wanted to play. We got Toronto coming up at home. I want to play. I got Rammer taped me up. Jim Ramsey, our, our trainer there in New York, longtime trainer. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Rammer, I need to try to get my stuff together here and I need to try to play, whatever. I missed a couple of games and I hated missing games. Like, I was never a guy that had to be at 100%. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if I was at 60% and I could time my skates, I wanted to play. Like, I don't care what kind of abuse people would say. Carter's not playing well. Like, no one had to know I'm not 100%. Like, that was just who I was. Because uh, I love playing so much, whereas I knew players that had to be 100%. They had to sniffle they weren't going to play. Mm-hmm. Or they're worried that people would write and say, oh, they had a bad game or they haven't been you know, doing anything for the last 10 games because they're not feeling perfect. Like, I wasn't that guy. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't care. Like, I just wanted to play and be a part of it. So I'm at Morning Skate, and I feel slats. Glenn Saylor up on the stands at MSG. <laughs> He's got the ISO cam on me. I can feel him staring at me, watching to see if I could shoot the puck. And I'm trying to shoot as hard as I can. I'm wincing. I'm trying to hide it because I want to play. We got the Leafs coming into town. I missed a couple of games already. Like, I was ready to get going. And Slats comes down on the boards, and he's like, Ace, you're not going. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I was so bad. Right. So I'm, I'm working with Terry O'Reilly now. Mm-hmm. Chaz, in the far end, we're doing quick feet drills, conditioning, like shooting a puck. And let me remind you, I'm with the coach. Right. We're sitting there working on stuff, you know, to help me get my game better, and also conditioning, too. I hear this voice from the far end. Ace, get your effing butt down here. And it wasn't the butt. It was a different word they used. Right. They used. And I was like, ah, I know I didn't hear that just now. And I'm still working with the coach. Because if I was screwing up by myself and teammates, I understand it. But I'm working with a coach one-on-one right. trying to improve, you know, getting my stuff together. Ace, get – he said the same exact thing. Get your effing butt down here now and ski. And I was like, ah, he's not talking to me. And keep in mind here, Nap, every day, every game that we had at MSG, he'd come in asking Rammer, where's Ace? Is he on the bike? How come he's not here yet? Hmm. And I'd get there after the game started so I wasn't in guys' ways to get my workout in the arena. Right. Boris Mirnov was never there. Darius Casper Rivers was never there. These guys were never – if they were hurt, they never showed up. Right. Pavel Burton never showed up. And he wasn't asking, I was like, Ram, did he ask for anybody else? He goes, no, he's asking for you. I don't know what's going on. Like, what did you do with the guy? I was like, I didn't do anything for the guy, Ram. Right. I have no idea. So he's trying to bag skate me. I'm working with a coach, 
And he says it again, like super loud. There's tons of media there. And I'm like, oh no. So I snap. <laughs> I snap. <laughs> I skate to center ice and I said, listen here, old man, you effing talking like that again. I'm going to rip down, rip off your head and urinate down your throat. That's what I said. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't use those words. Right. Obviously I'm using the PG version of it. Right. And Taz comes skating. over was like, Ace, don't do it. No, don't do it. And I literally, I got traded the next day out of there. Wow. That's what I was out of. Cause I, I had actually moved a couple of times because there's so many guys in that team that didn't care about playing hockey. Right. It was about the shopping on Fifth Avenue. I'm like, well, this is not what I came to New York for. Like, I want to play. Mm-hmm. Like, you got the resources there. Let's get this thing going. It's not a small market Edmonton. That, but that wasn't the case. A lot of guys just want to shop on Fifth Avenue and do their thing. Right. It's not the uh, like, mentality you know, it is now. Yeah. I go, I go, there's so much upside if we have success. You're like, what's going on here? Hmm. But, yeah, I literally, a couple of days later, I got, I got traded <laughs> when I was in the same plane. Oh. I'm a plane got traded out to Washington D.C. Yeah, but I, I was I was losing my mind. Like I couldn't the, the disrespect that came out of that guy's mouth. I couldn't believe in it. But it was building for some time. Building for some time. Wow. Crazy. Well, my own my own spidey senses, you know. Yeah, no, you know when you know you know. And exactly. <laughs> I wasn't all of a sudden dropping this earth, being who I am. <laughs> like you, you know, you, you know, can grow right. up. You 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 know. <laughs> all right. Wow. So, 457 points in 674 games in the National Hockey League. When you look back on your time in the NHL, what do you take with you? Uh, just, I mean, just the experience. Like, just, just thinking, like, how many billions of people are on this planet? Mm-hmm. You know, six, seven, whatever it is. And you get to be one of the 700 guys. Like, not just to play a game, but you make it a career. Right. You know, like so many guys are just so pumped for that jersey on, and that's what always motivated me being a tenth round pick was, I don't want to just just play a game. Like so many guys are just pumped to play a game. Like I don't want to play a game. I want to make it a career. Like this, this is what I want to do. I want to eat, sleep, breathe, train. Like this is what I want to do. Like that's that's what I took from the game the most. Like I was mm-hmm. able to make a career of it, being a tenth round draft pick, going a route that nobody really took back then. It was rare to play college hockey. Mm-hmm. and make the National Hockey League. Very rare. So to be able to cut that path and get the National Hockey League and, and meet so many cool people, uh, that's what I take away the most. It's just it's an experience that a few people in the world could talk about right. until they lived. No, right, yeah. And that, that, that was special. Like, it was all, for me, it was always a job. I loved doing it, but... I think I was able to walk away as a player because it didn't define who I was and who I am. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you hear about guys being depressed after not playing because that rush isn't there and people, you know, not want to shake their hand and give them free stuff and put them on a pedestal 24-7. Like, right. I, I still know former players now that haven't been able to cut the cord and still think they're the same guy playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I love the fans kissing up to them. Like, that's all great. But I was able to separate all that when I played and knew that came with the job. Right. So when the job was over, I could still love the game, but I, I'm not missing that other, that other aspects, other stuff that came with the game. Right. Not missing that at all. You know, black play, black players are the minority in the NHL. And I've heard you say that the black player, black hockey player experience in the NHL is so unique. What do you mean by that? It, it really is because 
we've all had to go through some sort of hardship to get to the level that we've gotten to. Mm-hmm. Like nothing, and it, it's very rare that a black player, and I, I think maybe the only black player that I know of, maybe might be Seth Jones, that didn't really have to deal with any sort of hardship. And Seth's mom's white, his dad's black. Mm-hmm. I still consider him black. I, I know with a guy like Seth, for example, he does so many great things in the community, and he might not see himself as being completely black because he's not. Mm-hmm. That's disrespectful to his mother, you know. But it's how you're being perceived. Right. So he's perceived as a black player. Let's let's put it that way. So, he, and I always knew just being a black player, it was unique just because the stuff I dealt with as a kid growing up, I was well equipped to handle it because my parents were awesome. My parents being Bajan, you know, they had a great feel for the world and they always educated us and let us know that racism exists. Mm-hmm. It, it always exists. You know, don't be mad. Like, don't get upset over it. It is what it is. Just deal with it. And just because someone makes a rude, like racist comment to you um, of a certain color, like you can't judge everyone else. It looks like them to be the same person. Right. You, you, you can't like, it's because you'll be mad at the whole world then right. <laughs> <laughs> because you're, you're a minority, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? <laughs> so that I always took that advice from them along with the, the classic sticks and stones. Um, I took that, I took that to heart. Like right. you could say whatever you want to me. It's not going to affect me. You put your hands to me, you're going to have a problem. But this is the stuff that you would hear growing up and it wasn't just the players because the players i knew i could combat that with a scoring more goals right and i do that on a regular basis as a young kid i hear the the n-word being thrown by other players or or, or other coaches or whatever and i'm scoring nine goals that game mm-hmm. I, I did that a bunch of different times and parents couldn't complain about me running the score up because hey this, this is what you guys are saying right look what you're teaching your kids so but, but when i heard it from parents that's when it bug me the most right. that's just because crazy yeah we you always thought that parents should know better mm-hmm. but you hear parents leaning over the glass you know saying stuff or even the coaches other coaches say something to you and you're like wait a minute you should know better i know you're these these people that the, the boys are this is learned behavior right but as a parent you should know better you You'll know be teaching so, the right thing ex- exactly so that was the biggest issue for me when i heard parents talking about it but it's just, I, that, and that's why it's so unique because we've all experienced it. We've all gone through it. We've all had to deal with that. But you're not carrying it around as baggage. Right. You know, we, we still realize it's, it's, it's a privilege to play in the highest league in the world. And that's just something that we had to do to get there. It, it wasn't going to be an anchor. It wasn't going to be a crutch. It wasn't going to be something that's going to hold us back. And it hasn't hold the black players that play in the league back. It's either motivation or that's, it is what it is. Let's keep it moving. Mm-hmm. but we were not going to judge and paint other people that same brush of ignorance that maybe that one person might have. I mean, when I, when I played in Boston, when I was on the road, I traveled under different alias. Really? If you called the hotel looking for Anson Carter, you wouldn't find me. Hmm. My, my parents knew my alias and the team knew it and my agents knew it. And that was it. Wow. Because a lot of times I get woken up from a pregame nap. Like we're going to get you today, nigger. Like you're dead. This and that. <laughs> wow. That's so, unbelievable. I'm sorry that you had to do that. Yeah, it, it happened rather than, and you know what? I didn't say anything about it. I didn't make a big deal over it. It's just, just give me my alias. <laughs> Let's keep it moving. Because nothing 
was going to detract me from being a National Hockey League player. Yeah, good for you, man. Nothing. It, it went back to even I have to ride my bike or take the subway, light rapid transit bus, subway, like two hours each way to go and train when I lived in Toronto <laughs> to the gym. Hmm. Like, cause I, I wanted to do it. Like, I loved it so much. Like, it wasn't going to be an excuse. Like, oh, it's too far. I can't. As long as my parents gave me bus fare, I was going to get there. Right. <laughs> so, I think if anything, it, it really taught you to be mentally strong more than anything else. Like, there, there's nothing I can encounter now that I don't think I could overcome or achieve. Mm -hmm. Because if I could play hockey at the highest level, mm -hmm. out of all the billions of people that play and live in this world and go through what I had to go through to get there, the other side, there's, there's nothing, like nothing, I've learned nothing can substitute hard work yeah, and focus. Right. Mm -hmm. And I know you have, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, I, I just apply that to everything, everything. And I know, you, you know, you have a close relationship with Willie O'Ree, who was the first back player in the NHL. You know, how important is it for you to continue to work with him, the league and, and grow the game and, and keep the diverse diversity going? It's, it's huge. And I, I got another story about that too. So I get to Boston, I worked 22 in college and I never knew anything about Willie O'Ree back then at all. Um, my favorite player growing up was Mike Bossy because hmm. Islanders won um, cups. He yeah. scored a bunch. He was a right-handed shot like me, so uh, I wore number 22. And I wore it in college. I didn't get it in Washington because Steve Conowalchuk was wearing it. So I get traded to Boston. I was wearing number 11, and I wanted to wear number 22. I go in the front office, and Michael Connell, uh, at first I said to him, I want to get something that tells me about teaches me about the history and tradition of the Boston Bruins because original six town. Mm -hmm. I came from Michigan state, Michigan state's steep with tradition program of excellence. Um, I came from Toronto. I know about original six markets. So I want to learn about the Bruins. Mm -hmm. He's like, ah, don't worry about a kid. Just focus on playing hockey. Mm. And, and I was like, okay. Right. <laughs> okay. So then I walk in the room and I asked the trainer for number 22. They're like, ah, oh, we'll give it to you next year. Come back and talk to us next year. Well, next year, Pat Burns gets hired. And I was at the press conference. I was in Boston for the press conference. I pulled him aside. I was like, Burns, you coach Montreal. You coach in Toronto. Did their rooms look like this? Because their room at the Fleet Center was like just gray. That's mm -hmm. all it was. And it painted, it was painted like the black and gold colors too. There's no pictures. There's no history. No nothing. And... He's like, we're going to effing change this next year. That's what he said to me. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and that, that's what he did. We started putting some pictures up mm -hmm. to get some you know, some history up. And it was to the point, Nap, where we had John Busick, who was the guy that handed out per, per diem every single road trip, mm -hmm. per diem and itinerary, the chief. And I thought he was some random old guy that he just gave a job to. Right. Just handing out money. I remember him doing that. I remember yeah. him being on the road and doing, yeah. I had no idea Chief was Chief, right. you know? Right. One of the top 10 left-wing scorers in national hockey history. Right. I had no idea. No, I, I, I remember looking up the same thing. I'm like, is that the same guy? I had no idea. Because yeah. he played it before my time, really. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I had no idea he was the Chief, like Johnny Music Chief. Like, I thought he was some random old guy they just gave a job to. Here, <laughs> you can just hand out per diem and, and itinerary. That's it. <laughs> I didn't know. Right. 
but this is all the stuff that I would have learned if Michael Kong would have said, like, here, here's, you know, a little media guide or something to help guys learn about the organizations and the history because it was so rich with history mm-hmm. and tradition. Right. So, so then we have a night where they bring up Willie O'Ree, the first black player, and they called me and Ray Bork to send Rice to give him a jersey or whatever. So the guy, whoever, when the PR people walk out this big jersey, it's covered, this big framed jersey underneath. And I skate out with Bubba, and we sit there and take a picture, and they pull the curtain back on this jersey, and it's number 22. Nap, I almost lost my mind. <laughs> almost lost it. Okay. I was like, wait a minute. I went to wear number 22, and will really reward this number, and you guys wouldn't let me wear it? Right. And, and, and it wasn't like they retired it because a guy named Miko Eloranta wore 22 after that. after Because because the Bomber wore number 22 our, that same season. Ken Baumgartner. We signed Bomber that year because Burnsy wanted to have like Dave Ellett and Bomber and Dave Andrewchuk, guys that he knew as veteran guys to help push his message. Bomber wore 22. Hmm. So that just gives you an idea that the sign that like that's the times that were then. Right. Because now, if I want to wear 22... I get 22 in a heartbeat. They'd probably throw 22 right? at me. Yeah. They'd tell you to take it before you ask for it. Right. Right. With, right. with, with how the game is so aware of what's happening around us and the game is being more culturally diverse and aware, which is a great thing. But then there was, there was a huge disconnect. That I lost my mind. I was so mad for like a week knowing that I could award the same number that the first black player in the National Hockey League played with here in Boston. Right. And that's, that's why I worked 33 then, because it's a mm. double-digit number, like 22. Right. So the, the, the game has changed so much for the better, and that that's a perfect example of it. Mm-hmm. And just, just meeting Willie that first time, I mean, I was just struck with like, the humility. And he, he told me the stories, like some of the stories you'll never hear him say publicly that he had to go through. And I, I can only imagine because you know, right. the time, it gets better every single year you move forward. Mm-hmm. The, the society gets better and improves. So he was came a long way before I did. So it was a lot more difficult back then. And the way he's been holding his head up with, with grace and class, and that's mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why too. Like I, I'm not bitter about anything. I know I know some former players are bitter over how they were treated, but I'm not bitter at all. Like why? Life, life a life is too short to be bitter. Mm-hmm. You know that was the past. We're making great strides moving forward. And I see a guy like Willie, and Willie's the happiest guy you could ever meet. <laughs> Yeah, always has a smile. Yeah, so yeah. so if anyone should be bitter, it should be it should be him. Right. So I look at him, and I'm thinking, okay, first of all, I'm not bitter to begin with, but I'm thinking if I even think about being bitter, I can't be because look at Willie. Willie's right. just pumped. Right. He's happy every day, and he should be more pissed off than anyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then you know you retire, you do some things, you create a big up entertainment. Mm-hmm. And you do a clothing line, shirt off my back, and then you you get into TV. Was the TV thing something you always felt like you, you could do or wanted to do? Yeah, no. And there was the furthest thing, the last thing from my mind, actually. Really? <laughs> I uh, Yeah, when, when I retired, Breeze, uh, Pat Brisson, my agent, said, Ace, you can do TV now? I'm like, TV? Please. Like, I had my mindset on, like, being in the entertainment business and developing uh, movies and, and films and after I had a bunch of my projects stolen from me, I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't really trust people in this Hollywood business. <laughs> there, there aren't really that many creative people in Hollywood. They steal. That's what they do. They don't create. They steal. 
Hmm. Or they or they try to mimic what's hot. Right. And they make up a different variation of it. I was like, what's the creativity in that? Right. <laughs> like, that's just laziness. So I would always complain to Breeze about the commentary I'd hear on TV all the time. Um, because they would always have like former tough guys or, you know, fourth line guys doing TV. And they'd always give that perspective. Like if a guy isn't running a guy into the glass, he's not doing his job. Right. You know, and, and I'm thinking, well, why can't a guy angle or use his stick or he's got the puck. So why does he have to be running around? If you, if you're not, if you don't have the puck, then you got to hit guys. If you get the puck on your stick, you don't have to be that physical. But that, that mentality wasn't being put out there. It was more, you got to be physical, you got to be hard, you got a good character guy, you got to work hard. You know, if you're not working hard, you got to work even harder. Right. It's like, no, why not work smarter mm-hmm. and read the play? So instead of going 100 miles an hour on a straight arrow to try to hit a guy, why not just use your angles and cut him off behind the net and take him out that way? Mm-hmm. So I'd always lose my mind listening to guys talking all the time about this. I'm like, this is a joke. Like, no, this, this, this can't really be happening. And I'd call Breeze up and complain all the time. He's like, you should be doing TV. And then finally he got pissed off at me. He's like, you know what? I don't want to hear about it. Unless you're ready to do TV, like, don't call me back. So <laughs> games happening. I'm, I'm watching a game somewhere. I had the dish. I got a bunch of different, like, networks going at the same time. And I called him up. And I go, this is a joke. And click, click, he hangs the phone on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, whoa, you just hang up on me just now? This, this can't be happening. So I called back again. And he doesn't pick up. His wife, Kim, picks up. And I was like, Kim, where's Breeze? And she's like, he's right here. I was like, let me talk to him. And I could hear him in the background. He's like, if you want to talk about these broadcasters, I don't want to hear about him unless you want to get on get on air, jump on air. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll give it a try. So I tried out um, – no, I, I he called the people at NHL Network. And I talked to them, the main guy from NHL Network. And he we have a conversation. I'm walking my dog. I walk my dogs every day for 50 minutes. And he's like, we're going to give you three shows because we don't know if you're going to like us and we don't know if we're going to like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's fair enough. You know, whatever. I jumped on NHL Network Nap with no meeting, no what's a rundown, no what does SOT mean, no what segment this, right. oh, and here's where the cameras are, nothing. Just go. It was almost like, yeah, it was almost like, okay, it shows up in five, four, three, two, one. And I'm looking at Catherine Tappan, who I started my first shows with KT, and a guy named Billy Jaffe. I'm looking over. I'm like, what is going on right now? Nobody told me anything. No production, no nothing. I'm flying blind. I have no idea what's going on. Right. So I come back home to Atlanta, and I'm walking my dog. My and that's when it was in Toronto, correct? It was in Toronto. Yeah, it was yeah. in Toronto. And it was great because the studio was literally like five minutes away from my parents' house. Hmm. So I got to go and see my folks, which was awesome. And the guy calls me up, and they're like, uh, so what do you think? I was like, it was great. You know, I liked it, you know, whatever. And he's like, yeah, you're pretty good at this. You might have a future in this. Uh, you want to do some more? I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got some free time. I could do some shows here. Send them some dates to be available. And I did some shows, and then that was it. So I tried the next year. I'm like, okay, I tried calling them back, and they weren't calling me back. <laughs> I didn't hear anything from them, like nothing. So I was like, well, what's what's this is kind of bizarre, like, and I, I figured that ship had sailed then. And I knew people down here at CNN and the Turner. And I said, this is what I feel like doing. And I just had a random phone call out of the blue from Mark Bellotti from NBC Sports. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I heard through the grapevine you're interested in doing some TV. I was like, yeah, I'd love to. He's like, send us a reel or whatever. And I found some clips from NHL Network and had it put together. I sent it over to them. 
And they're like, yeah, we'll give you, you know, a few shows. You can try it out, see if you like it. And I was hooked. Like, I, I thought it would be too much work at first. Mm-hmm. And that's not something I wanted to do. And I'm glad I didn't jump into it right after I retired. Like, I waited a few years first because I needed some time to step away from the game. Mm-hmm. Because there are some players I dislike. There's some coaches I dislike. There's some management guys I dislike. And I couldn't give a real objective opinion, like, having those same feelings about these people if I would have jumped right in the TV right away. Right. You know, like if there's a coach that I hated, I'd, I'd probably end up killing him on TV right away for no reason. It's because I knew in the back of my mind I hated this coach. Right. But to be able to step away mm-hmm. and get some clarity and then come back to the game again, now I could talk about coaches or players who I liked or might have disliked that were in the game or still in the game right now. And really, there's no emotion connected to them. Mm-hmm. It's all about just analyzing what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, for me, it's a, it's a better and more fair analysis that I'm providing. Whereas, you know, I could always tell when there's a reporter talking about a guy or writing a story about a guy or a guy on air talking about someone that they have a, a rapport with because it comes off a little bit different than someone they don't really know or someone they don't like. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be that guy. So I was glad to step away for a few years first and then come back to the game. And then now I can just come back to a game of clean slate. Right. So I don't care what relationship I had with you before, whether I liked you or hated you. It didn't really matter to me. That's just what you're doing on the ice, what you're doing behind the bench, what moves you're making as a manager, and the tape doesn't lie. Mm-hmm. And I can, I, can, I can sleep better at night doing that now because now I'm like, okay, I can provide a fair analysis. Like, like we did the Stanley Cup Finals, Boston, St. Louis, and a bunch of the Boston fans like, Anson, you picking us for game seven? I'm like, you know what? No, St. Louis is winning tonight. And people, <laughs> they were pissed. They were so mad. Like, you're a former Bruin. I was like, you know, I play a lot of different places. Yeah. But and my heart isn't really connected there to Boston. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I'd say it's more connected to New York, and I didn't play there very long, but I'm there all the time. Right. And I watch a lot of Ranger games all the time. So mm-hmm. I might be more connected there, but I'm able to break down and talk about things they're doing poorly a little more freely because I had a chance to step away. Right. I'm sure. And, I- and that's... Sorry, go ahead. I would say that, that's important too because at first when I started there at MSG, like Ranger fans didn't really like it because I would be killing some of the guys sometimes. And the team wasn't very good, but I'm not going to kill you to make it like a YouTube clip. Right. But I'm going to say it. I'm going to back up the tape. But I'm going to be honest about it. Like I'm not going to be a guy. I'm not going to have the pom poms out. Like right. that's what your host is for. Your host is the guy that's cheering on the team. Like as an analyst, if the team's playing well, you say they're playing well. If they're not playing well, I believe you got to point out why they're not playing well. Mm-hmm. And especially to New York fans who keep it real. Right. And if you start saying, well, this team's playing great and they've lost 10 games in a row, they're going to stop listening to you because right. of your credibility. Right. They won't believe you. They know. Right. So, yeah, I'm not going to go out of my way to, you know, tell people what they want to hear, but you got to keep it real. Mm-hmm. And now you can, you can do it in a way that you're respectful and tasteful. And that's one thing I always try to do, too. Like, I'm not going to kill a guy on air. And you just go about my business and think nothing is wrong because I know that guy is a person too. He's right. got a family. And that's one of the reasons why I like doing home games. I haven't done many home games in the last few years because I know Valley does the home games. But the reason I like doing home games is so I can get to the, the dressing room. Right. Talk I to like the guys. The and, it's, and it's not so much to talk to guys. It's so guys can see my face. Mm-hmm. Because if someone has a problem with me, they can come up to me and, and say, hey, Anson, I don't like you said this. Right. And – more often I love a conversation if it does happen. It hasn't happened, but if it does happen, like the tape doesn't lie. Right. 
Right. You know? Yeah. No, so, it's a, yeah, it's a great approach. And I've, I've, I've had respect for, say, guys like in the business, like a guy like Larry Brooks, who kills guys, but Brooksy's always there. Mm-hmm. He's always there, and I've respected that. You know, as a player, you don't like when guys are like killing you in the paper. But the fact that he shows up, right. I respected that. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't like guys that would kill me in the paper or on TV, and I never saw them. I hated those guys. Right. Because they didn't have the guts to show their face the next day for me. If I wanted to give them a piece of my mind, I couldn't. <laughs> like it, it's, it's easy to do that. But a guy like Brooksy, you say you want about him, but I respect the fact he showed up every day. Right, he's there. Yeah, you might not like what he has to say, and he's not just pulling stuff out of the air. <laughs> right. It might be something other people might not want to talk about, but he's there. Yeah. He's there, and I, re- I respect that. I, re- I really do. Yeah. So that that's kind of why I show up for morning skates, not so much to get intel. And I mean, some some part of it is to get some intel because I don't want to say rip on a Chris Kreider if he's gone like 15 games without scoring, and then I know he's playing with this like a broken wrist, but no one else knows that. And I find out from the team or from him this is what's happening. Then I won't say it on air, but I'm going to lay off of him knowing what's going on right. from health wise. But if you're not there, you're not showing up. You're not going to know these little tidbits of information. So you might go off on a guy for not producing the last 15 games, not knowing he's playing with a bad groin or a broken thumb, or he's barely being able to bend over and tie his skates up. Right. It's all about preparation. It is. It is. And those are all things I hated with other guys because I never played 100% all the time. And I I hate it when I'd hear guys say stuff about me back then when I played, but they didn't know what what I was going through. Right. They didn't know. But, and I didn't really care, but if you showed up, you would know. Right. <laughs> right. Do your work. Exactly. All right. Before I let you go, Anson, I got a few lightning round questions for you. Sure. Favorite arena to play in? Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Favorite. Well, I'd say any Canadian market mm-hmm. and any original six market. Uh, I think Toronto, Montreal, New York. And those are the three top three that were probably yeah though they're it's hard to separate those three just because of the energy that mm-hmm. you get from from playing in those markets all right worst, by far worst visiting locker room you were in the worst oh, probably the islanders it was awful oh, back in the day, yeah. oh my gosh it was brutal <laughs> I, you know what i thought about the igloo that was a bad visiting room too Ig- igloo is bad and i've got an igloo story so <laughs> I don't know if you got time for this, but yeah. I'm my, my first year in the league, I'm taking my sticks up and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I could smell smoke down <laughs> the, the corridor, like outside your locker room. Uh-huh. I could smell smoke. I'm like, what the hell? Do they people smoke in the igloo here? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> you can't smoke in the building here. And I'm taking my stick up and I could smell it getting stronger around the corner. So I go, I walk around the corner. I see the big fella, Mary Lemieux, having a dart. <laughs> 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 He's there in skates shin pads pants and his uh <laughs> suspenders and he's smoking a cigarette that's great before the game and i'm like wait a minute this Mary Lemieux, he smokes <laughs> what is going on right now <laughs> jeez the things you don't know in the national hockey league oh my gosh oh. jeez you think guys are like the best athletes in the world they always say don't smoke it's not good for you right. and there's the best player in the game puffing away in a cigarette Oh, so, yeah, Igloo's pretty bad, too, but I think the Coliseum was worse, though. Uh, most inspirational coach you've ever had? 
most inspirational. I've I've got two. I would say. Mm-hmm. I would say. I'd say Burnsy is one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I like playing Pat for Burnsy. Burns, yeah. It was always yeah, Pat Burns. It was always like black or white with him. There was no gray area. You always knew where you stood. So I always appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Always, always appreciate that. And I always knew that if you played in a city where he coached, you had to be ready that morning. <laughs> you couldn't <laughs> screw around a morning skate because he wanted to win so bad. <laughs> so bad. So, yeah, I think either Burnsier or, or Trotsy. Cool. Because Trotsy, he just, he, he let you be yourself. Mm-hmm. And he just, like he's like, listen, you can play my way or your way. You can try your way. And if you cause a turnover, you're not going to play the rest of the game. Like right. he'll, he'll let you figure it out. Almost like a kid learning how to ride a bike. Mm-hmm. And a kid falling down is like, oh, I guess I better ride the bike this way. Well, that was Trotsy. So I think those two are probably the, my, the two most inspirational. All right. You've played in a lot of cities, so let's see your taste in food. What do you choose? Vancouver sushi or New England clam chowder in Boston? Ooh, that is close. Ooh, geez, those are both close to my heart. Um, oh, jeez. I think I'm a sushi guy. I, I think Vancouver sushi, even though that chowder, the chowder, chowder, chowder in Boston, the chowder is a very, very close second. I can say one A and one B. All right. Uh, you played in Edmonton, so Alberta beef or Carolina pulled pork? Oh, jeez, these are tough. I love <laughs> some barbecue. I love a mean steak. I'm going to say pulled pork, though. Pulled I pork? live in the south right now, too, Atlanta, so I appreciate right. that southern food more, so I'm going to pull pork. All right, last one. Detroit or New York-style pizza? Oof. That Little Caesars pizza after game is really good. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, I used to live for that after game. I got hooked on it at Michigan State. We played Michigan there at the Joe uh-huh. in front of 18,000, 19,000 people. I used to love that pizza, but... <laughs> New York City. You yeah. can't when it comes to food. You can't you can't beat the Big Apple. Oh. That's one of my favorite reasons why I love going there. All the the wide variety in food. You can't beat it. Nice, nice. Well, Anson, I appreciate your time and sharing so much with us, and and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be back at it soon and get to work together again. Yeah, absolutely. Stay safe, Matt. Appreciate you, having me on. You as well. To you and your family, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. That's a guy who sticks to his guns and knows his worth. I commend Anson for that. Always stand up for what you believe in. On the next episode of Mike Check on Sports, I'll chat with former professional soccer player and current New York Red Bulls analyst, Shep Messing. Take care. Brush your hair.